Hello and welcome to our podcast about ending gender-based violence in universities and colleges. I'm Ruth Lewis from Northumbria University in the northeast of England. And I'm Susan Marine from Merrimack College in the United States outside of Boston. Together, Susan and I have been working on the problem of gender-based violence in higher education for several years. We've just published an edited book called Collaborating for Change, Transforming Cultures to End Gender-Based Violence in Higher Education. The book prioritizes activism amongst students, faculty and staff working in universities and in community organizations. For more information on the book and the work we're discussing in this podcast, visit collaboratingforchange.weebly.com. For now, on with the show. Today, our guests are Marcus Sibley, PhD candidate at Carleton University in Ottawa in the Department of Law and Legal Studies, and Diane Crocker, Professor of Criminology at St. Mary's University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Marcus and Diane are going to speak with us today about their chapter in the book entitled Transforming Campus Rape Culture, Lessons from Complexity Theory. Their chapter examines ideas about complexity theory in light of work that they've done in Canadian universities and helps us to understand how theorizing and activism can complement and bolster one another. Welcome, Marcus and Diane. Morning. I'd like to start off today asking you both to tell us a little bit about your work and uh, maybe give us a little bit of a broad brush context regarding Canadian universities and gender-based violence. So in Canada, the, the issue has certainly risen uh, to public attention and university attention in recent years. Um, I think all universities have developed policies across Canada um, on campus sexual violence. Some provinces have developed legislation mandating that policies must be developed. Um, others have other uh, governments have just developed, you know, memorandums of understanding to suggest <laughs> that that policies are developed. And the policies often ask uh, the legislation often asks for um, policies and also reporting back to government on numbers and so on. So there's been a lot of uh, attention on that side. Um, and there's been a lot of student involvement as well. Some national student organizations have written some reports, um, sort of giving grades to various policies, for example. And there's some research coming out now as well, which um, both on the policy front, the more theoretical front, stuff about activism, there's all kinds of, um, of work now coming out in Canada. And the landscape, though, is uh, similar to in the U.S. and in Britain, although in Canada there seems to be a really more exclusive focus on sexual violence on campuses, whereas in the U.K. it seems to be a little broader. And we don't have a federal overview like you have in the U.S. with Title IX. We don't have that kind of um, landscape in which all of this is happening. And uh, can you both talk a little bit about what interested you in the idea of rape culture and how you um, also came together to work on this topic together? Maybe I'll give it a start and then I'm going to hand it to, to Marcus, uh, okay. who is my uh, partner on the rape culture concept. I came to it through, I do work on domestic violence generally, but my involvement started when we had an incident on our campus of a pro-rape chant um, of first-year students being led by senior students in what was essentially a pro-rape chant. Um, sort of one of those frosh week kind of rituals. But um, a report came out from our university that said we need to change the rape culture on campus. And that was followed by a series of recommendations, many of which were fine. Um, but when I read the report referencing this idea of rape culture 
and then listing, you know, we have to have a policy for this and a policy for that. I thought there was a disconnect between the idea of changing culture and mm-hmm. policies that recommend sort of concrete pivots around offices being available or reporting structures and so on. Mm-hmm. I didn't think that that got at the culture part. So then I knew of Marcus's work on the idea of rape culture. So I, uh, I guess I invited him to help me bolster my own understanding of that idea, how, how a deeper understanding of the idea of rape culture and the history of the idea came into play in terms of the research I had done. Yeah, I would say that I first uh, was turned on to the topic uh, just by the general climate on my university campus at Carleton uh, University in Ottawa. Uh, and I think a lot of student activists and faculty members were had looked to St. Mary's University and uh, some of the things going on there in terms of, at, you know, calling out rape culture in the university setting. And at our university, student activists um, were quite blatantly demanding that the university incorporate this concept of rape culture into the sexual violence policy. And this led to some tension and sort of a, a polarization on on campus around this idea and that while you had one camp really uh, devoted to sort of pushing through this idea that the university should recognize, should acknowledge uh, rape culture as sort of the driving force of sexual violence on campus and sort of uh, part of the systemic factors that create barriers to uh, people coming forward uh, with reporting sexual violence and accessing campus-based services, there was a, a sort of a pushback from another sort of camp on campus, or that that sort of questioned this idea of rape culture and 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 sort of put forth the notion that it was too heavily invested in a sort of like carceral feminist politic, and that it was too easily co-opted by people wanting more police on campus, more robust punitive uh, measures for students accused of sexual violence. And so there was really this tension, and and that's sort of where I got interested in looking at that idea and then wondering, well, where does this notion of rape culture even come from? Like, it's so popular, so intense right now, but does it have a sort of a historical trace to it that we, that we can sort of look at and and how does that idea develop and manifest so that's sort of where i am coming from and have contributed to this sort of this chapter really in terms of the historical uh, lineage or baggage of great, great culture okay. wonderful so you sort of alluded to this in your response marcus but the term rape culture um it's a bit slippery right it means different things in different contexts and sometimes, at least in the U.S. context, what I've noticed is it's come to mean kind of anything about our university cultures that we don't like and we think is contributing to the problem, right? So I'd love to hear a little bit about from both of you how you define it, um, because you do a very you know clear job of operationalizing it in your chapter, um, and then maybe a little bit about how you think the meaning has shifted over time. Marcus should start that one. Well, in terms of a definition of rape culture, I think uh, sort of like I would define it as the sort of systemic uh, contributors, the cultural attitudes towards sexual violence, the way in which we, you know, contribute to and also silence sexual violence in various ways, right? And so I think this is sort of like one of the dominant definitions of uh, of rape culture in that, as, as you mentioned, it, it is used as sort of a catch-all term to de- to define anything we dislike about sexual violence. And this is sort of 
can be beneficial and can also be problematic in that it, it's beneficial in the sense that it, it sort of draws awareness to a wide set of behaviors or practices or barriers or systemic factors that contribute to sexual violence, like directly contribute to sexual violence or contribute to the lack of attention that sexual violence gets in terms of police intervention or access to rape crisis services or any mental health service. or But because it does tend to get taken up as a catch-all term and incorporates such a wide variety of behaviors that we sort of dislike on campus, for example, you know, drinking culture as part of rape culture, fraternity or sorority culture as part of rape culture, that it tends to lose a kind of specificity or it tends to lose some pointedness in terms of locating how can we actually make tangible, meaningful changes to or transform culture in a way, right? Like, I would say that my definition would be in line with most people's definition, I think, in that rape culture are sort of like the cultural dynamics that contribute to sexual violence or the pervasiveness of sexual violence, not just the pervasiveness, but the kind of barriers and challenges to talking about sexual violence. And at the same time, rape culture then impedes itself in a way, when we use that term, we kind of also kind of set up a roadblock in a way, especially for people who are not familiar with the term or who find it to be particularly unuseful, tend to resist the use of rape culture because it's so, it, it sort of characterizes such a pervasiveness that it, it really changes people's worldview that they, they are now part of the problem, right? And that, and that though they're not directly contributing to sexual violence, that they are part of a broader rape culture. And people generally t tend not to want to associate with that kind of culpability, right? Diane, can you talk a little bit about how complexity theory connects to these ideas and what sort of sparked your thinking about using complexity theory as a lens to consider and think about ways to dismantle rape culture? Right. And that's partly why I, I defer to Marcus on sort of defining and conceptualizing the idea because I'm trying to kind of studiously stay uncommitted to a definition <laughs> because in some ways, my approach using the complexity theory um, means that I want to sort of stay away from the fray of the polarizing of the debate. And I want to understand the concept with that lens on it. So it's in some ways, it's not even a feminist lens, right? It's a complexity lens, which is a different politic, I guess, uh, not right or wrong. It's just the way I'm, I'm approaching it in this time. So the complexity theory, I was learning about that for a different project. Um, and when I read that as I mentioned before, when I read that line, we want to change our, we want to transform our rape culture. I really did get to thinking about what does it mean to change a culture? And my first degree is actually in anthropology, which I think kind of tri triggered my thinking around culture as something and how you change it, how it adapts and how it is complex. And the complexity theorists are sort of anthropological in one way, although they're also, you know, on the verge of quantum physics. If I read far enough into it, stuff that I stopped stopped being able to understand, <laughs> really mathematical. But somewhere in the middle, there's a range of theorists who who apply complexity theory to social problems or social contexts. I guess is a better way to put it, and describe them as either simple, complicated, or complex. 
So a simple problem has a linear solution and it's what we learn in social sciences to study and solve, right? You know, we have a lack of this, so we put it into the system and we get a solution, right? You know, we can test various ways of teaching certain things and see if it works better. We can, so in post-secondary education, we can assess learning styles and see if that really does help people learn differently or better depending on how we teach. We can do, there's, there's simple, simple problems, simple solutions. Then there's a, a complicated problem, which is a little more nuanced. So it's, it's still a linear, but there may be intervening variables. So it's not just A to B, it's A to B with a couple of diversions along the way, intervening variables, things that we have to consider that intersect with that relationship. Complex problems, though, are more nuanced in the sense that you can't identify a direct cause and effect. So this is where the area of changing culture. So that my instinct around our report at St. Mary's that these five recommendations on policy aren't going to transform culture was essentially, I didn't know at the time, reflecting that sort of simple to complex um, environment, right? The policy recommendations are necessary, needed. They were all filling gaps in our service provision or in our policies, but they were assuming that the problem of culture was going to be solved with simple solutions or complicated solutions that we could study how well they worked. So, you know, the university wanted to study how effective these policies were. And so that was where, that's where, as I was learning about the complexity theory, that's what sort of, it all came together. And if we don't understand this problem in a more complex way from that perspective, we will be issuing wonderful policies. We'll have the best, we could have the best reporting system, the best service providers, the best discipline process, and we won't transform culture. Um, and that's been a lesson I think we can learn in the violence against women, gender-based violence sort of movement that we have done a lot of policy work over the years that has improved situations sometimes, not always, but has sometimes improved the situation, but hasn't ultimately changed the culture that underpins um, gender-based violence. In the book chapter that you've written, then you talk about your study where you were looking at how students perceive this concept rape culture and how others, such as scholars and staff and faculty in higher education, perceive it. Can you say something about these differences between the different sets of perceptions? So one of the things that comes with taking on a complexity approach is the sudden inability to do research in the way I've been trained to do research, <laughs> which is to, you know, ask what they think about something and then report it and then develop a solution from that. So a traditional social science approach to this would be to ask students what they think rape culture is, right, to report on it, to say whether they're right or wrong or, you know, that kind of, you know, the traditional way of doing um, a social science report. An anthropologist would, you know, head into the, the residence and and take position there and live there for three years and do field work in ethnography to understand the meaning of the concept in that context. But I wasn't going to get away with that. <laughs> so, so the, some of the complexity folks that I, I work with, they use a narrative approach. So it's, the idea is instead of asking someone what they think rape culture is, or do you think it's this, do you think it's that with some examples, um, or how strongly do you agree about a bunch of characteristics of a rape culture, you actually ask people for a narrative or a story or an anecdote about what exemplifies rape culture. So in this research, I asked students, there were several story prompts, but one of them was, can you tell me about something that shows that rape, rape culture is alive and well on campus? Or we always do the flip side story, or that rape culture is overblown, like people are exaggerating the nature of the problem. So they gave me a narrative. So it's basically, it ends with what happened. So it's really prompting the students to give a short anecdote about something that illustrates this concept. And then the questionnaire goes on to ask various questions that, that prompt what that sort of means to them. So, you know, is this story about 
um, sexual violence, physical violence, or emotional violence. Like there's various questions that then tease out what that narrative means for the students. But the biggest finding on um, that story prompt that I thought was interesting that we that we highlight in the book is that most of the stories that students told about rape culture were about these big incidents that happen on campus. So I mentioned earlier the pro-rape chant we had at St. Mary's. There was also dentistry students at Dalhousie, a university down the street from me, had a, a very misogynist and sexist Facebook page that was discovered. So when asked, tell me about a time that you saw rape culture on campus, a lot of the stories were about those big incidents. Very, very few of the stories were about sexual harassment, sexual violence, or sexual assault. We had other prompts that got stories about those kinds of experiences, right? So when they saw the word rape culture, they tended to tell a story about these big public incidents. And so the importance to me for that about that was that it means that I know, at least on St. Mary's, we are taking on the concept of rape culture and we are trying to teach them about what it looks like and using you know, the sort of triangle of, of various forms of violence, starting with you know, sexist jokes and at the peak being the infrequent, but you know, much more serious you know, sexual assault experiences. We're teaching them this, but it doesn't resonate because their, their examples of rape culture are these big public events, these sort of shaming exercises around finding something horrible that happened, putting it up on YouTube and, or, you know, publicizing it. Mm -hmm. So I think if we, if we train and teach students using the concept of rape culture, and we think that for them, that, that it will resonate, that even those sexist jokes that, you know, lead all the way to the problem of sexual assault, that that's not how they understand rape culture. I think if we'd asked them, what do you think rape culture is, we would have gotten some of the definitions that Marcus said, or some of the contradictory ones that are in the literature. We would have gotten the one that the student just learned in their first year within gender studies class. We would have gotten a, huh? You know, I don't know what you're talking about, sort of, you know, we would have gotten more or less articulate answers. If we had given a checklist, we would have probably gotten what rape culture is defined as in the literature. But rape culture for the students we surveyed was about those big incidents. It wasn't about something that happens between two people. So if we try to tell them that the, the, the bad things that happen between two people are illustrative of rape culture, it may not resonate and may not be an effective way to teach them. Do you think that's in part a defense mechanism because it would really require them to kind of critique and perhaps distance themselves in ways from social practices that they actually might enjoy or benefit from? Well, some of them did participate in this new rape chant, they said themselves. So in a way, some of them were there for that when they told the story. Right. Um, there was that. Maybe, but I mean, they did tell us about other stories and other with other prompts, with other you know questions. They would tell us about things that would implicate them more. I think in some ways, this is a really indirect, like it is almost an anthropological way to get them to describe a concept, right? So I don't know if there's time to process that. You can't kind of game this question, right? And make sure you don't look bad in it. Or So I think I think that's a little bit avoided in, in this way of asking. And and we did get stories that, that would have done that in other, in other okay. And it is, it seems to me, it's very instructive to know that some of the ways we've been thinking about it or talking about it are really not coherent with their um, ideas about it, because at the end of the day, if we want to shift it, we sort of have to agree on what it is. I, I hear what you're saying about let it have some openness and, and flexibility as a complex theory, but also then comes the moment of work to transform, right? And uh, that's going to be tricky, I think, if students and faculty and staff activists are in, 
are in different places with that. Do you both see, Marcus, I don't know, can you speak to that a little bit? Because you, you referenced that you came to this idea through your own experience at Carleton. Do you see challenges with that disconnect? Yeah, I think that when we're talking about rape culture, we need to be pretty specific. And I think that the concept sort of fails to do justice in the sense that it's not targeted to a particular or not hinged to a particular kind of behavior activity or thing that we want to transform it's sort of again this catch-all phrase and so if we're looking at the problem is consent and the issue of how do people negotiate consent how do people understand the idea of consent how do you communicate consent how do you effectively withdraw consent in a safe sort of meaningful way then perhaps the language or our conversation should be specific to consent, right? And we're sort of seeing this on campus. A lot of the student unions and student organizations in Ontario and Canada and elsewhere are actively changing the discursive framing of this problem from one of rape culture to now consent culture, right? And so this is sort of, I'm starting to see that this is part of the new lexicon or the new language of anti-rape activism, especially on university campuses that we're now I know the Canadian Federation of Students, which is Canada's uh, student union for undergraduate students, you know, hosts a consent culture conference or meeting every year, right, uh, to discuss strategies. And I'm not, I honestly don't know yet if that is a more effective framework, because again, it's sort of, we sort of get lost in this idea of culture, right? Like, what is culture? What aspects of culture are we specifically interested in looking at or identifying as problematic? And so when we, when we use the language of culture, it really incorporates a wide set of sort of social phenomena that both tangible and intangible, these kinds of like qualities that we necessarily can't change or, or are not really equipped to sort of targeting, right? Uh, um, uh, and we generally tend to find like th that when we talk about rape culture, consent culture, we're getting to the attitudes towards these things, right? Like how people feel about sexual violence and what their position is. Like, are they accepting of sexual violence? Do they perpetuate it? And so I think we need to find specific targeted ways. And I, and I honestly think that it starts with it does start with consent, right? If what we're really getting at is sexual violence, then at the heart of sexual violence really is this idea of, especially for students, you know, between the ages of 18 and 25, right? Um, how to effectively talk about consent, right? Like, what does it actually mean? Because students are not learn necessarily learning this at the high school level or at the elementary school level, especially in Ontario, where you have the provincial government trying to make changes to the sexual education curriculums, right? So I think that that's where it really starts, is teaching children what consent actually looks like. And not just consent in the context of sex, but consent in, you know, all aspects of our, you know, social world. You're speaking to one of the ways in which kind of campus culture intersects with or is circumscribed by kind of the wider cultures that we live in. I think sometimes we get enamored with the idea that we can, we can turn our campuses into these kind of bubbles where we can do change work. And we sometimes, I think, underestimate the impact of what's going on in the rest of the world, right? So do you feel, maybe Diane, this is a good question related to complexity theory. Is this part of the challenge around addressing this problem is we can't 
really isolate our campuses from the the effects of the broader culture. Yes, that's right. There's no force field around our campuses that, you know, we can somehow <laughs> create um, sexism free spaces, um, no matter how many posters we put up to that effect. <laughs> but I think so I think the complexity, it, I mean, it may get back to some fundamental feminist ideas around root causes around inequality, right? That that if these things are embedded in structures, the structures have to change. And so while we can't necessarily, again, you know, we can put up anti-sexist posters all day long, what is the university as an institution? So this is the challenge that I'm taking my research and this is the challenge I'm bringing to people at my university and also on a provincial um, advisory committee in Nova Scotia. What do we do about our institutions to undermine rape culture? That's not about making a policy that says this is the way you consent to sex, which is, you know, hardly a policy or even a policy on this is how you report a sexual assault or an incident of sexual violence. That what is the university institution doing to change itself and how it governs itself? So I say to, you know, the president, have you done a study of pay equity on our campus? You know, that, that uh, you know, at the, to the extent that there's a, there is a, a bunch of stuff happening that keeps women's roles in the university differentiated from men. Um, women do, women faculty members do more service than men, you know, just in my anecdotal experience. And, and, and many of us would see that we see women promoted less quickly because women go, Oh, I don't, you know, I'm not going to bother putting in my promotion papers and so on. Right. So that's just on the faculty end. Um, I have questions about how the university funds varsity athletics in terms of how that also keeps the structural inequality between male and female students intact. We provide, I'm pretty sure, a lot more money for the male sports, including, you know, football, uh, American football here. Uh, so uh, so there's some questions to me that, that the complexity lens says it is good to do the simple solutions. We do need the solutions that do the linear stuff. We do need the solutions, you know, the more complicated stuff around, you know, rape myths and attitudes that aren't linearly, you know, your attitude leads to you being violent. But let's, you know, say there's some connection between what you understand the problem to be in your behaviors. Let's let's work on that as well with, you know, bystander training or whatever we need to do. But at the complexity level, we have to see this as an institutional change that's deeper than just the topic, right, that is actually about equity between men, women, um, all genders, all identities, uh, it had, you know, it, 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 and so that is back to almost the, the, the first lesson of feminist thinking around this problem in the first place, right? So thinking about the concept of rape culture, is your sense that it depicts perpetrators and victims from specific groups? Or is it used differently amongst different ethnic groups? I'm wondering, do you think that the concept of rape culture perpetuates the idea of black rapists and white victims, for example? I'm not sure if that if the concept itself is intrin- intrinsically does this. I, I, I would think that people who most people who are deploying or using the term are not using it in this specific, you know, way of depicting racialized men, for example, as more rape-prone than non-racialized men. But it does, the, the term does have this kind of lineage, right? And so if we, if, we, if we trace how rape culture gets sort of conceptualized, and if we look all the way back to sort of 1970s, radical feminist thinking and uh, theory, that it does have this propensity to implicate racialized men as rapists. And and what I'm thinking of is when we think of how quickly sort of that, when we think of that triangle that Diane 
sort of mentioned where, you know, rape jokes and sort of this wide spectrum of sort of like sexist or misogynist behavior exists at the bottom and then gets more pointed and specific towards the top as sexual assault, right? The actual act of sexual violence. Those angles become more acute, I think, for black men, for example, or racialized men. And, and, and specifically, we can look at examples of a common example is Susan Brown Miller's famous work against our will, wherein that she sort of takes us through, she, she, she walks us through the lynching of Emmett Till, who's, you know, a, a young black man living in Mississippi who allegedly wolf whistles at a white woman and because of that, he's lynched, right? And so in her analysis, Brown Miller says that that wolf whistle is part of essentially a spectrum of violence that if left sort of to car- be carried out to its fullest extent would involve, you know, a rape, right? Uh, and she calls this that the wolf whistle is part of a, what she calls a theoretical intent. That And, and she sort of an, is an anecdote of of her walking through the streets of New York City and being wolf-whistled and thinking that that these men who are wolf-whistling or catcalling have this theoretical intent of raping her and that the wolf-whistle is part of this spectrum of violence that does result in this kinds of physical acts of violence, right? And so I think that spectrum is more easily applied to racialized men because of the sort of myths and tropes and stereotypes that you know, black men, for example, are over-sexualized or hypersexualized and uh, more prone to, to committing acts of violence, especially towards white women. I think there is that racial dynamic. I don't think it's necessarily intrinsic in the idea of rape culture, but it, I think we have to be careful in the way we deploy it because it, got, it does get deployed. It does get appropriated rather quickly and then latched on to racialized people, especially in the context of adding punitive, you know, making the punitive measures of our carceral systems more robust, right? They always tend to target racialized men uh, disproportionately when we're talking about uh, punishment and policing. One of the things that you mentioned, you, you declare in your in your chapter, which I think is really important, is when you talk about the fact that there's a lot of variety among the way that Canadian universities are using this concept in their policies, or in many cases, not using it. And that in some cases, you know, Canadian universities have sort of preferred to name this as a problem of, you know, people's just individual behavior without a context around it. And you've, you've said a couple of different times during our conversation this morning that that then prevents us from really addressing the problem when we, when we sidestep the, the cultural or political context in which these acts happen, which we might call rape culture, this complex set of factors. So what do you think it might take to prompt or, or, or push Canadian universities to go more in the direction of understanding this concept and using it as a framework for thinking about systemic change? Why, why would Canadian universities resist doing so? And what do we do about that? I think the resistance is because there's a, it's the same in the criminal justice system is that these are seen as, this is a transactional problem. Something has gone wrong between one or two people or a bunch of people got together and did something wrong. I think that's, I think it's because it's easier, (laughs) right? Um, It's easier to, to, to to do that. It's also political. I'm not quite sure why our action team or, or task force or whatever they were called at the time used the words rape culture so early in sort of 
conversations about this in Canada. Um, it may have been naivete at the complexity or the, the political um, heft of that concept. But I'm not even convinced necessarily that it's the best way to go to use the, like, I, I, so some of the, some folks in Canada, I think, Marcus, this is what you're alluding to. I haven't been as close to this debate, um, that there's a resistance to it because of its implications in terms of sort of carceral feminism. So some people actually on the very feminist side object to universities using it. And some people are on the feminist side also very much want the universities to use it. So there's a tension there. Um, and I haven't decided one way or the other whether it's useful or not. I just want to get out of that fray and have the universities think at the more institutional level, the more system level than at the transactional level. But Marcus, you might say, can say more maybe about that debate because it's played out, I think, more in Ontario than in Nova Scotia. Yeah, uh, it, it does tend to be drawn across those lines in terms of addressing the systemic issues and then also s thinking about those kinds of punitive, carceral, and r sometimes racist lineages of the, uh, of the of using that phrase or sort of how that phrase gets deployed pragmatically, right? And that, that we know that it tends to, you know, there there was this uh, debate sort of or this tension on campus around even not just rape culture but the idea of believing all survivors, right? And so that quickly turned into, well, when we believe all survivors, then racialized men tend to bear the brunt of false accusations when they do happen, right? And so this was the tension also playing out around this idea of rape culture. But I think that universities are resistant in the sense that, I'm not quite sure if they're totally resistant, but they might might be resistant to you know looking at this from a systemic point of view because those systemic changes are just require so much more heavy lifting right they require more economic investment in providing services and provisions for students and survivors of sexual violence on campus it's not a one kind of those individualistic approaches I think are much more manageable for universities in the sense that they tend to focus on disciplinary hearings, right? Like they, they already have that infrastructure in place, right? They have it sort of for academic integrity and, uh, and other, uh, student code of conduct violations, right? So they have those tribunals or those hearings already in place. So why not just add sexual assault and sexual violence to the mix, right? And sort of this is the critique in the sense of how we are turning the university into a quasi-legal or quasi-carceral uh, system or a reflection of the criminal justice system, right? Taking those kinds of elements that feminists and anti-carceral scholars have been critiquing so heavily for years and then applying them to our workplace, our living spaces, our learning spaces, requires a little bit more, I think, critical thinking or thinking through those ideas. I, I'm not sure if we should... so quickly adopt those kinds of measures uh, because they have, you know, the potential for expanding those networks or bridges between what is a learning environment, right? The university has a learning space and bridging it with the policing apparatus of, you know, of our neighborhoods. And then what happens, right? Do the, do the lines become so blurred that the university is also kind of this space of heavy police surveillance or police presence or securitization, right? Like, what does that turn the university into? Yeah, I think that if I can just bounce off that a little bit, and it's outside the chapter, but it's where the chapter and where the thinking leads me to is, you know, I've said to university policymakers before, because Marcus is right, they most, most universities in Canada bounce the, the process to the code of conduct, the existing code of conduct that deals with, you know, stealing a library book, you know, all the way to sexual assault, right? 
they don't have a specific process. Um, so those processes are very individualistic and transitional and based on a, a transactional, I mean, and based on a very much a, a model of individual discipline. But I actually think, and it doesn't come out in a book, but I think one of the transformative possibilities lies in very different discipline processes and more restorative and transformative justice approaches, because ultimately they can get at culture because they can understand a behavior as embedded in a, in a context, right? Those processes don't let an individual off the hook if they've committed something harmful, but they also embed that understanding of context in terms of where that happened. And I know it's very controversial for feminists to think about the use of those kinds of processes to change, to help create campus culture change or change in society at large more. Um, and there's lots of caveats around using a restorative or transformative justice approach, but I think that there's possibility there that needs to be explored a little bit. And in Halifax, we had a really big example of it with the uh, Dalhousie dentists who I mentioned earlier and their misogynist Facebook page. There was a very extensive restorative justice process there involving several of the women who had been named in the Facebook pages and several of the men, not all of them. And it was seen by the participants to have been a really successful process. And it also, what it discovered was, and it, this gets back to the book a little chapter, a little, it discovered that the that this Facebook page was a symptom of the way many professors acted in the department. The culture of, you know, a male professor waking up their students with a sports illustrated slide, you know, that kind of there was that that the men in that that Facebook page were being sexist and misogynist, were treating their female colleagues in a horrible way, but it was happening in a context that had to be addressed more broadly. And the restorative process address their own behaviors as sexist and misogynist. It, affect, it addressed the women and how they felt about having been named on these pages, but it also brought in the whole school to say, you know, what gives here? Like, what, how is it possible that, that this is happening in classrooms, right? Not deflecting blame, but understanding responsibility and the complexity of it. That's really interesting. The, the sense that there's a, there's a hopefulness about a developing non-carceral mm -hmm. approaches to dealing with sexual violence in universities. I have heard other activists from India and from the UK start to talk about those possibilities as well. So it's great to hear that example. Moving on to our last question now, can I ask you both what you think other activists can take from your work on rape culture? Clearly that point about developing non-carceral approaches or developing alternatives to to uh, a, a solely carceral approach is one example, but are there other things that you think activists working against gender-based violence in universities can take from your work about rape culture as a complex problem that can't be solved by individual policies or training packages, for example? I think it's, it poses a, a true challenge for activist work because activism requires a sort of engagement with the public, whereas academic work, we're sort of you know, speaking generally, of course, strive to have our research and our ideas, you know, extend to a broader audience. But activism is sort of grounded in that kind of engagement with the community. And so part of mobilizing community response to sexual violence or any other social problems requires a certain level of engagement and an incitement and excitement, right? And so the idea of rape culture tends to excite people, whether positively or negatively, it gets people talking about the issues. And so I would say that it poses an inherent challenge because on the one hand, it gets people talking, but on the other hand, it's there's sort of like people don't necessarily identify with the idea of rape culture, right? And, and this is sort of what our chapter points out is that 
unless we're talking about grand spectacles of violence, you know, portrayed in the media, the term might not resonate well with students and it might not resonate well with the broader public, right? That this might actually be seen as a quote academic term, which tends to sort of distance community members away from those kinds of engagements, right? That this is like, you know, a problem in the ivory tower kind of thing or a, a theoretical debate, right? And so maybe we need to change the language a little bit. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, activists in Canada are sort of, or student union groups are changing the names of their groups to consent culture committees or groups or changing the frame to this idea of consent culture. And whether that gets a response, I'm not particularly sure. But I think that activists should be aware that the term doesn't always get the response that they might want. And I think that if the goal of the of activist work is to incorporate, you know, the wider community, especially men. Uh, we we really want young men involved in the conversation around consent and around sexual violence and have them participate in understanding and learning what this problem is, right? We we need young men involved. And so sometimes these terms tend to distance people from engagement. And I think we need to sort of think about how best to be inclusive. I mean, I think the complexity stuff makes, on the one hand, can make it harder for an activist because it's easier to push for sort of the more simple kind of solutions. But I also think at the same time, I know a lot of activists who are just exhausted at having done that for 30 years and feeling like no change has happened. So I think it also opens the door for other ways of thinking about solutions. And not in the chapter, but the complexity folks do have ways of thinking about how you do experiments and how you do projects in an institution or in a context to make change and how to monitor those through through changes in stories, for example, so that you actually try something and see what happens to the, the narratives you collect about about a subject. So about rape culture, for example, how do those shift as we try training differently? For example, hypothetically, you could monitor changes in narratives as they reflect the culture. So that's that's one thing I think the complexity theories open up a door for a new way of doing activism. Um, I also think that the chapter identifies a gap between how we, and I'm saying we here as a sort of senior faculty member or a senior administrator person in the university, understand the nature of the problem of rape culture and how students do. And in some ways, that's exactly what activists have noticed. They just haven't put their finger on it quite maybe the same way. But there's a gap between these two things. And until we address that gap, we're not going to change the culture. So I think the chapter kind of lays that out and goes, there is a gap. So don't think that you're a 50-year-old cis white guy or, you know, I'm a 50-year-old heterosexual woman that I understand how students at 20 understand the term rape culture or consent and that I can develop training to fix the problem. So in a way that opens up a big space for activists to go, okay, great. There is a big gap. Let's like there just is. And let's, let's work to close that gap a little bit more. And that really points to the importance of collaboration, doesn't it, between those 50-year-old uh, academics and the younger, the younger students too. I want to thank you both, Diana and Marcus, for a really fascinating conversation that I think is going to be really helpful for other scholars in the area, but for other activists as well. So thank you both so much. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, this is terrific. Thank you. We're so excited about the work you're doing and uh, really look forward to hopefully amplifying it to a larger audience through the podcast. Thanks for listening to the podcast. We hope it sparks some ideas for your work to end gender-based violence in higher education. Whether that's research work, activism, or work in an administrative role, 
If you'd like to engage more, visit collaboratingforchange.weebly.com and you can listen to the next episode of this podcast.